Welcome to Wine for Normal People, the podcast for people who like wine, but not the snobbery that goes with it. I'm your host, Elizabeth Schneider, author of the Wine for Normal People book and certified wine dork. And I'm MC Ice, just a wine-loving normal person. This show is sponsored by Wine Access. Go to wineaccess.com slash WFNP. Check out the wines that I'm drinking right now. And don't forget, as the holiday season is coming up, make sure that your loved ones know that Wine Access has gift cards, and that is something you would really like for the holidays. Get 10% off your first order with my special URL. We haven't done a show on Sherry since 2012, so I think, you know, 11 years, probably time to relook at it, explain it again. And it is going to be two parts because sherry is a topic that is complex. It's a lot to digest. So I think it's important that we break it up into two shows. Nice. Is that right. okay with you? I, I like that. Yes. And we do love sherry or Jerez, as they call it in Spain and have for a very long time, and we'll talk about the history of it. Jerez? Jerez, because they, the Castilian Z. Yeah. So it would be Jerez or Jerez. Uh-huh. But would be... Got it. You get it? Got yeah, it. you got it. I wasn't sure if you were talking about the Greek goddess, Hera. I'm reading too much Percy Jackson with the kids, clearly. You know I'm being Medusa for... I know, because I know, I'm, I'm excited that about book, that. This, about the Gorgons and Medusa, but it's about all three Gorgons. You it's know, not I, just her. Yeah. She's the one who gets all the credit, but you know there's two other sisters. Did you know that? Medusa I was the most I famous did. of the Gorgons. But they were not cursed? No, they were immortal. She was the only mortal. Oh, okay. Then some stuff went down. She wound up with the snakes, but apparently they all wound up with the snakes. They did? To some le- yes, and then there's this very interesting thing about how she used to be portrayed as this really disgusting looking right, person. Right, right. But then... Later on, she became this beautiful person who then had the snakes come out of her. So it was like a tragedy. Right. But before, she was a monster. So for my Halloween costume, I'm really not sure what to do. Because on the one hand, well, you Clearly, have, you're going as the beautiful version. Oh, thank you. That, good answer. Mm-hmm. Good answer. I digress. Um, I do want to get to Sherry. I just need to thank our patrons really quickly. Okay. John Michael K. Barry E. from Atlanta. We know Barry. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining, Barry. Pravin D, Nick H, Natalie R, Katie P, and Erin M. Thank you so much for joining Patreon. If you're interested in joining, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash wine for normal people. And then you will get to come to lots of other fun stuff. Special so, patron only. Although for one hour. So again, if you if you happen to live close to Nashua, New Hampshire, I will announce it now. I will be stopping in at this event, but we are having an event of Serge Duray's wines at one of the state stores in Nashua, New Hampshire. If you happen yeah, to be well, how near How do you get there, more information on this? I will be posting it up on Instagram and okay. Facebook. If you happen to be near that area, it's just for an hour and it's open to the public. So Serge and I will both be there. Nice. But it is just for one hour and it's a really hard stop at one hour. It's November 18th. Okay. So again, it's only, it's only an hour. Yeah. Right. If you are a patron, I know I had mentioned the Serge event. That is, This is something separate from that. Right. So right. don't, yeah. Now let's talk about Spain and Sherry or Jerez. Mm-hmm. Can I just actually give a beef before I even start about this? One thing that drives me crazy is that things like Sherry 
and champagne and port are no longer capitalized. Actually, I'm going to go one step further and say that when I first started in wine, varieties, grape varieties were capitalized, right. and now they are no longer. So wait, wait, when did champagne and port stop being capitalized? So they started to decide that that was a type of wine instead of a place, and so then it should be lowercase. And I think this is largely due to the New York Times, and I find it very disrespectful to the places. And I also think that it is terrible that they have now put varietals in lowercase, like Chardonnay and Cabernet, something, because one of the things that it winds up doing is it doesn't stand out anymore. And when we are reading, you really need to see it's not necessarily in English. It's, It's something that is different. It's the name of something. I think all of that should be capitalized. I don't understand why everybody went along with this convention. I think it's crazy. Well, it's a place. Right. You can't call any sparkling wine champagne unless it's from champagne with a capital C. Correct. And so they're saying it's a type of wine, not the place. And so if you were talking about the place, you would capitalize it. I think that's absolutely incorrect. And I'm going to say the same thing about Sherry. Sherry is the anglicized name of Hereth, and it should be capitalized, in my opinion, as should every grape variety, because again, for ease of reading, when we're reading about it, to have it stand out as something, it just makes it a lot easier to read than everything being in lowercase. Right. It's in a, mostly in another language, in English at least. I think it's absolutely wrong. And I, and well, I you have to tell the like, editors for the well, next book. I don't really care. No, no. We have already, the editors already know. Okay. And I have already said under no circumstances will any of this varietals or for regions ever be Keep anything but capitalized. But anyway, I do want to say that with Sherry, and I know that the people in Sherry also agree with me mm-hmm. on this. So we can have a grammarian argument about this, but I actually think that it's a really stupid thing. Neither here nor Maybe there. You can it's have not Grammar easy. Girl on. I did have Grammar Girl on. We talked about this exact issue. Oh, yes, sweet. I will. I can actually post. Oh, remember that's I right. Talked about that this. one's a We long talked time about this ago. exact issue, and right. her. She said it's absolutely fine as long as you're consistent to continue to have things capitalized. As long as everything is capitalized. Right. So there's no agreement on it, but the fact that people have just bent to this rule is ridiculous, in, mm. especially when it comes to champagne, port, and sherry. Yep. Okay, that's my diatribe. Sherry is an aged and fortified white wine. It is produced in the Sherry Triangle, which is in the southernmost area. The, it's actually the southernmost wine region in continental Europe. Hmm, it is? Yes. It is in the Zona de Crianza, the growing zone, includes... Three major towns which make up what is called the Sherry Triangle. Jerez de la Frontera, El Puerto de Santa Maria, and San Lucar de Barameda. Those are the three towns that actually, if you draw the map, yep. they make up a triangle. Not to be confused with Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill. No, this is another triangle. Got it. But there are other towns here, too, just like there's other towns in, like, Cary right. and Apex other places. Apex and, yep, Garner. Uh, Trebujena, Lebrija, Chipiona, Rota, Chiclana, and Puerto Real. These are towns that are also included. This area is surrounded by water. The Bay of Cadiz opens to the Atlantic Ocean. You have rivers. The really important river is the Guadalquivir in the north, and you have the Guadalete also. In the west, you have Europe's largest protected nature reserve, the Doñana National Park. So how close were we when we were in the Algarve in Portugal? 
we were four hours away or else we would have gone. Okay. Darn. If we had gone a little bit farther east uh-huh. in the Algarve, I would have insisted that we go to the Sherry Triangle. Okay. I well, have been awfully time. close. I've never actually been there. I've been to Malaga, which is pretty close, mm-hmm. but never to the Sherry Triangle. My sister has been there, and she says, I'm sure some of you have also been there, she says the whole place just smells like Sherry. It's oh, kind of nice. cool. Yeah. This area is its relatively flat because we're talking about coastal areas, mm-hmm. gently sloping hills that go inland. They get steeper as they go into the foothills of the Cadiz. East Mountain Range. There are about 7,000 hectares or 17,300 acres of vineyards in those nine municipalities. Okay. And as we talk about it, about 30% is large bodega, mm-hmm. 28% is indie, like just, you know, individual producers, and then you have 42% that is cooperatives. Okay. It's actually really evenly spread out between different types of production. Mm-hmm. I think the history in Sherry is very, very important when we talk about it. We'll get back to the climate and land in a minute, but the region has always been shrouded in myth. People say that the famous lost island of Atlantis is under the Guadalquivir. Hmm. People say Atlantis is everywhere, right? which means it probably never probably. existed, right? I mean, that's got to be it. Yeah. It was like a made-up place. No, or like there Shangri-La. Were, no, or there were multiple versions. I have no idea. I always found it very dodgy. Like, how can that many people say that it's under like whatever Well, thing? it's kind of like the Great Flood. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, every every civilization has a, a Great Flood story, right? Yeah, I guess so. But anyway, we'll leave Atlantis to the listeners. They can figure that out. Alright, so Sherry has been around for at least 3,000 years because the Phoenicians, who probably came from Lebanon, founded the town of Gades, which is now Cadiz, in 1000 B.C.E. And they introduced vine cultivation then. So they called the region Hera, X-E-R-A. I wonder if it's after the Greek god. Could be. They shipped the wine all over the Mediterranean, as the Phoenicians were wont to do. And the wines from the region of Seret, then it was changed, were first noted in the first century BCE by the Greek geographer Strabo. And he noted that the Phoenicians brought the vines there in 1100 BCE, and excavations of wine presses in the area have proven this. So it is true. The Romans took over in about 138 BC, and they called the area Venum Ceratensis. And they shipped the wine everywhere again because it was a major economic product. Sure. Also, Columella. Do you know who Columella is? Yeah, she was on uh, The Sopranos. Tony's wife. That is actually really hilarious. Columella wrote some of the most important agricultural tomes during the Roman era about wine with Pliny. Pliny also mm. wrote, but Columella was also very important. And Columella Wait, was the elder? from the elder and the younger. Okay. Columella was from Cadiz. Hmm. So Columella was actually from the Sherry area. Now, something happened after all of this amazing history, which is the Al-Andalus in 711. The Moors came in and they ruled the area for 500 years. So the region was still an important producer. They justified the production of wine by being an important raisin producer. 
Raisins were an important source of nutrients for the army. They also distilled wine to use for perfumes and medicine, but they also made the wine so that rich people could still drink it. There was always this thing that in Spain, people were still drinking wine under Moorish rule. It was a little bit looser because the Moors could tax that wine, and they did. In the ninth century, Serish wines were mentioned. They eventually became sherry. And then in 1264, you had the Reconquista, King Alfonso X made vines and cereal mandatory to grow. Mandatory for whom? If you were taking over the land, you had to grow vines and you had to grow grain. Jeez. He was awesome. Wow. Right. And there's this myth that a very important military officer, Fernan Ibanez Palomino, gave his name, Palomino, to Mm -hmm. the most famous grape in the region, which Mm. is the Palomino grape. We had a lot of these wines being quite popular after the Reconquista in the Mediterranean Sea and especially in Great Britain. And they opened a trade agreement with England where they were bartering wool for wine. They did this with port as well, and it wound up screwing the Portuguese, but that's a whole other story. (laughs) Um, Very important to the economics of the region, and it kept sherry alive. In 1402, it was already illegal to grub up vines, and it was so popular and such an important source of wealth that you had a lot of disputes, not just among the locals, but also the British, the French, and the Flemish who were exporting the stuff and had a real say in what was going on. Finally, in 1483, they created something very unusual, which was the Ordenanzas del Gremio de la Paza y Vendimina del Jerez, which is the Raisin and Grape Growers Guild Bylaws. (laughs) Okay. This is the basis of the designation of origin rules today. They talked about growing areas. They talked about the aging regimen. They talked about the importance of quality. So that really helped with the status. And it couldn't have come at a better time because at the age of discovery, this was in 1483 that they created the Gremio, the age of discovery happened and the Americas opened up. And these were new markets for sherry. It was great because sherry is at the very bottom of Spain. So really easy to ship the product out right on the shore. On every ship bound to the New World, there was sherry. I was going to say it transports well, right? Well, this was before fortification. But but sherry was used to toast conquest in South America. It was very, very popular. What would sherry taste like without fortification? Well, God knows, really, because it wasn't until the 18th century, the 1700s, mm-hmm. that fortification became widespread. In the 16th and 17th century, the British came in. Again, this story is very similar to what happened with port. And part of this was, I think there was um, maybe a, like a little fight between Spain and um, England. I don't know if you remember all of that. Uh, the Spanish Armada, things like Something that. vaguely rings a bell. Yeah, well, Sir Francis Drake stole 3,000 kegs of sherry in Cadiz. Sir Francis Drake was English. And when he stole it, they brought it back to England and (laughs) there was lots of trade. Sherry became incredibly popular. As a result, it had this like unintended effect of making the wine super popular because now all of a sudden there was this wine from a place that was very warm and it was much fruitier and really nice. And so actually it's mentioned mentioned in tons of Shakespeare plays, like like tons of the Midsummer Night's Dream. Yes, there's a bunch of plays where Shakespeare talks about sherry because at that point in time, it was incredibly popular. Does he refer to it as sherry? Yes. Huh. 
in the late 18th century, England and Holland, maritime powers, as they were going overseas a lot in the 1700s, they wanted wines. Now, their taste was no longer for young wine. They wanted some aged wines. So what the guild decided to do was, okay, we need to start aging this wine. There were some rules about aging. It was actually only allowed to be young wine. But then they decided, okay, we're going to fortify these wines also because previously the wines were not going that far. The south of Spain to England was not so far that you would have like really bad spoilage. It was right. a few days or a week. Yep. Now, if you had something crossing that was Atlantic's going, you're going to, yeah. yeah, when you start crossing the Atlantic, now you start to worry about spoilage. So this is when fortification became really important because they needed a steady product that could age for a long time. And so this is when modern day sherry came into play. This oh. was really in the late 1700s. And that's when we see the system that I'm going to talk about today with the Criaderas and the Solera aging system that makes sherry so unique. Sherry, as we know it today, was sort of born at the same time as America. Yeah, it was, actually. Yeah. That's interesting. Which is interesting because, again, although Madeira was used to toast many of the finer moments, the more important moments, the wines both of both Sherry— are del- Both are great with almonds, that's Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, Sherry, Madeira, Port, and then the wines of the Canary Islands were all incredibly all important. They cousins. Yeah, they're all very, very important. In the 19th century, phylloxera hit, but it hit Spain in general and certainly Jerez a lot later— They already knew that they had to graft onto American rootstock. They didn't have the problems like in France where they struggled for a really long time. As a result of that, actually, they decided to cull all of the grapes that they were growing that weren't that good. Mm -hmm. And they just decided that they were going to plant the Palomino grape. Hmm. Now they had easier shipping technology, better communication, more expansion in the international markets. The English started investing. And then they had another problem. Sherry was still quite popular in the early 20th century, late 19th century, and people started to take, and this is a problem that they still have today, take the Sherry name. Yeah. And especially the British encourage their colonies to try to make Sherry, Canadian Sherry, Australian Sherry. This is intellectual property issues at their worst. Sherry really started to come up with controls about mapping out a denomination of origin system. The problem is nobody really honored it. How would you enforce that? At that point, you couldn't. Now there's more things. But in 1933, this predates the French origin system. They had the first designation of origin to try to just stop people from stealing the name of Sherry and putting it on any old product. Hmm. Again, most people did not honor it, and we still see it today with cooking sherry, right. which is not at all the product that we drink. Not even close it's to not? being. No. Uh, is it even the same grape? No. Actually, they add salt and pepper to it. What? Cooking sherry doesn't have to be made in sherry. Huh. It's, again, an IP violation. It's, it's a little bit ridiculous. So in the 21st century, this is when we've had less demand. Nobody wanted the wines. And now I think they've done a really good job of bringing it back. It really is a niche product. And our message is, as you're listening to how this wine is made, and again, we're going to talk about all of the background this time, and then we're going to talk about one type of sherry that is made. And then in the next show, we're going to talk about the other types, because that's when it gets a little more complicated. Right now, we're going to talk about the easiest type, which is the biological aging. But it is important for us to discuss the terroir of the region. So we'll go back to the towns of the Triangle and just talk about this. You have 
Jerez de la Frontera. This is the largest city in the area. It's the capital of the wine region. It's on hills over an open landscape. It's also home to flamenco and horse breeding, the Palomino horse trade. Oh, wow. 200,000 inhabitants in Jerez de la Frontera. Then you have the town of El Puerto de Santa Maria. This is where the river Guadalete flows out into the Bay of Cadiz. It's just a couple kilometers from Jerez. Nice beaches. People Hmm. vacation there. Let's go. And then you have another town which has special significance, so please pay attention to this name because we'll be mentioning it later, Sanlúcar de Barameda. This is further to the north. Why is this important? Because it is the origin of Manzanilla, which is... A Apple? wine that has special, not manzana, manzanilla, <laughs> oh. which is a wine that has special characteristics because it is very close to the seed. And San Lucar de Barrameda makes a different type of sherry mm-hmm. than the sherry that is made in El Puerto de Santa Maria and Jerez de la Frontera. And we will discuss that. So just again, it's important to distinguish between the towns. To talk about the terroir of this wine, the climate of this area is very mild winters. About 40 degrees Fahrenheit or 4 degrees Celsius is the average temperature in the winter. That's not too bad. And then very, very hot summers. 40 degrees Celsius or 104 degrees Fahrenheit is not unheard of. They get 25 inches average rainfall a year, which is actually pretty good for grapes. They need about 23 inches Mm -hmm. to live. So so that's not terrible. (laughs) And then you have an average of 300 days of sun per year. It sounds like it's great for vacations. I don't know about grapes, though. It is great for these particular grapes. There's also two strong winds, and these are very, very important to sherry because they alternate back and forth, and it's going to affect the wine as it's aging Mm -hmm. in the bodegas, actually. You have the ponente. This is from the west. It's humid, and it's coming from the Atlantic, so it's a little bit cooler. Cooler, sure. Yeah. Then you have the Levante. The Levante is from the east. This is warm and dry, and it's coming off the Sahara. Ooh. Pretty hot. Hot breezes that are dry, and then you have cooler breezes that are humid. We'll take a step away from the podcast and just remind you super quick that if you are interested in taking wine classes, winefornormalpeople.com slash classes is how you can get in on that. We've had a lot of new class takers lately, lots of great comments about how people never have taken the classes before, but they will be back again. So make sure that you put it on your list to do it. We'll have a couple more towards the end of this year. We'll be starting up with a full schedule next year too. winefornormalpeople.com slash classes. And also there are gift certificates for the wine lover in your life, or if you want to ask for it for Christmas or the holidays, make sure you get that on your list. Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash wine for normal people. You will get a ton of information and a community of amazing friends who you can enjoy at hangouts and in person. And it's a wonderful community and it's a way to support the podcast and help keep us going. Patreon.com slash wine for normal people. And Wine Access. Wine Access is the exclusive sponsor of this podcast, and they are awesome. WineAccess.com slash WFMP is my exclusive URL that is going to get you 10% off your first order. 
Wine Access truly believe that it's hard to get into wine unless you have access to some great wines and they provide that access. That is why it's called Wine Access. Prices range from things that are not so expensive to some of the most exclusive wines in the world. Their wine team forges relationships with outstanding importers and producers and they bring all of these wines to us. They have excellent customer service. If you don't like the wine, they will give you a credit for another bottle and you get free shipping on any order over $150, which is not hard to get to. Those shipping costs can really add up. So this is a wonderful perk. And you also have a month to reach that $150 free shipping threshold with their buy and hold feature. And don't forget, we are coming on the holidays pretty soon. You can give wines or gift cards to your clients. I know MCI orders wine access gift cards for clients, and it's a great way to show your support to the podcast also by using my special URL, wineaccess.com slash WFMP, and let them know that you heard about them through me. So get on it today. Go to wineaccess.com slash WFMP. You won't regret it. These wines are fantastic. Now let's get back to the show. The soil types, they're mainly these wide horizons with gentle slopes. We're talking about 10 to 15% grade. They're, this okay. is not steep slopes. The main and most important soil here is called albariza. Right. This is the lightest soil. It is best for the Palomino grape. Palomino is the main grape here. So there are three grapes. We should go over the grapes. You have Palomino Fino. It is colorless, basically. There isn't a whole lot of fruit. It's pretty neutral in aroma. A little chalky tasting, low in acidity. So, is so it the a blending grape? Well, it is essential for sherry because the base wines are going to oxidize well. Okay. When I talk about how this is, this is a characteristic of a grape that you would not use in other circumstances, right. but here you would use it. And then there are other grapes that are used for sweet wines. You have Moscatel, which is in the coastal areas of the Dio, and it's used for sweet wine. Mm-hmm. And then you have Pedro Jimenez or Pedro Jimenez, which has a very high sugar content plus high levels of acidity. So it makes these beautiful sweet wines. They usually dry them in the sun on straw mats for five to 15 days. A lot of PX is bought from partners in an area called Montilla Moriles, where the humidity is a little bit lower and it's easier to dry it there. So Pedro Jimenez, I don't know if you remember. PX is the shorthand. PX, we've had it on ice cream before. Yes. That's an amazing, amazingly delicious wine. Yeah. Yes, we did. I think, uh-huh. yes, with some, I think there was like pumpkin Pumpkins, seeds on it. Yep. Yeah, that was delicious. But we've done it here before too. Mm-hmm. We need to do that again. So good. A nice boozy ice cream mm-hmm. treat. Delicious. So those are the grapes of sherry. And as we talk about the soil types, Palomino far and away is the most important grape. So Palomino does best on Alborita. Alborita is 30 to 80% chalk with limestone because the sea covered this area at one point. So you have limestone, clay, mm-hmm. sand. It's actually similar to Chablis and Champagne. Lots of subtypes of Alvarita are mixed with other soil types, but the key here is that Alvarita is a white soil. So the sun is going to reflect light to the vines oh, and, and speed that photosynthesis. Uh-huh. 
Actually, I mean, this can help in some ways cool it down because that white soil is going to cool down faster. It's not going to retain heat. Absorbing it into the soil, absorbing the sun rays into the soil, right? Right, right. In the dry months, actually, it's really nice to have. It can absorb and retain humidity. So even if there's no rain, when you get the breezes coming in off the Atlantic, it can actually store that both the rain and the humidity and feed the vines during the dry months. Hmm. So it's a really incredible soil type, incredibly adaptive for the grapes. They can use this alberiza soil and survive even in the driest of times. That's amazing. Yeah. The other thing that the soil does is as it bakes in the sun, it's going to crust up and that's going to prevent evaporation also. It's going to get hard. You have two other soil types. This is not for the the highest quality wine. There's Baros, which is rich and fertile dark brown soils. It has some chalk, but it's mostly clay and organic matter. And then you have Arenas, which is yellowish reddish soil. A lot of sand, a little limestone in the coastal areas. That's mostly for Moscatel, not for the Palomino grape. Got it. There is another factor about terroir, which is going to sound really, really weird and crazy. But part of the terroir is the architecture of the bodegas. What? That counts as terroir? Yes. Okay. So what's so special about it? I think it's important to state this ahead of time before we talk about how the wine is made. When you mature and age sherry, Mm -hmm. you need some very specific conditions because it's warm. You have the Atlantic Ocean. Then you have these dry breezes. You have variations in temperature and humidity. So you have to build buildings that are going to be the best for aging this wine. The first thing is you have to make sure that the location and the orientation of the bodega is in the right area to facilitate air currents that are coming in from the Atlantic. You have these nightly breezes with humidity. To get the yeast to develop, which we will talk about, you have to be able to maximize those night breezes so off the Atlantic face Ocean. West? You have to face south. Okay. And you also need to orient yourself so you minimize direct sunlight Ooh. with the walls of the building because okay. you also don't want to bake the place out. Yeah, we know from our front yard. Right. How devastating that can be to uh, agriculture. Now, in addition to that, they have very thick exterior walls because you have to make sure that you can keep the insulation as much as possible. Mm. And the height, they're known as cathedral bodegas because they are so large. So that lets the heat rise, Rise. right? It's at the the top of the building. Mm -hmm. Then there's circular openings that are going to move the current and get the hot air away. Like oculus? Uh, oculi? I don't know, but they're in the high openings in the east and west walls that push out the hmm. hot air. It's really clever. That's fascinating. Yeah. And then the the final thing is that the floor is covered with a sandy soil called albero. Depending on when it is, they can hose it down. So it's not like a hard floor. It's going to be a soil that can hose it down with water and that's going to make more humidity. Right. Wow. Clever. Old school tech. Yeah. That's part of the terroir. Depending on where you are, you've got to build the bodega so that it can capture hmm the right amount of humidity, let out the right, you know, I mean, it's crazy, but it really does make a big difference. Okay. That is the background of Sherry. We are going to talk about the winemaking and then we're going to do a stop and talk about the second part of the winemaking. Okay. Wait, when you mean stop, that's when part two is going to kick in. Okay. That's right. Because otherwise I think it's just too much to absorb, frankly. Winemaking. We're going to harvest the grapes. 
Right. Grapes are separated by texture, origin, and quality at harvest. Destem them, mm-hmm. crush them. Mm-hmm. They have primera yema. This is 65% of the total must after the crush. This is filtered into a tank, into a stainless steel tank. Now, this is a pale, light juice just because it was crushed but not pressed, so you don't have that additional color from the skins. Then there's the segunda yema. This is the second press. This is about 23% of the total volume. Mm -hmm. Light pressure. And then you're going to get more structured juice because you're pressing it. So you're going to get some of the tannin out of the skins and the seeds. That's more color, more structure. Does it? Ma- how is it pressed? Bladder press, okay. right. And then there is a third press that is called mostoprensa, 12% of the volume. That's hard pressure. That is not used for sherry. That is used for distillate. They'll use it to season the casks, which means that they'll put it inside the casks and kind of slosh it around so you don't have any of that oak flavor from the newer oak barrels. You don't want oaky sherry. That is not the goal here. So they'll do that, or they will use it to fortify the sherry of their bodega because you should be using the grapes from your own bodega to fortify your own sherry. The Primera Yema is used for what we will be calling biological aging. The Segunda Yema, the second press, is for oxidative aging. We are only going to be talking about biological aging in this show, and next time we'll be talking about oxidative aging. But I will explain the differences, and I won't leave you hanging. Okay. As alcoholic fermentation happens, something very interesting forms. It is unique to this area. A thin white layer of special yeast starts to form on the surface. It's called the velo de flor. It is the flowering veil of yeast. The strains of yeast here, they're native. It's just ambient? It is ambient. Okay. And that happens after fermentation is complete. First, the yeast... Well, yeah, because the fermentation would kill the yeast, right? Well, this is the interesting thing, right? So first, the yeast is going to take some of the oxygen that's captured in the liquid... But after that oxygen is done, the yeast go to the surface to continue to get oxygen. So they have to float up to the top. The yeast is colonizing on the top of the wine, and it makes that layer. And that layer, depending on what happens, is going to make it so thick that no oxygen can get into the wine. Hmm. It's going to reproduce pretty slowly, but then once you get the yeast there, it seals off the wine. Like algae on a pond and ends up killing the fish. That's really funny because I just was talking to our daughter today about algae Mm -hmm. versus algae, and I've started to call it algae. Okay. That's good. I know that she'd be in favor of that. She wasn't, but then I explained it to her, and now she's because she thinks she's British. Okay. Anyway. You ferment the wine and you've got the floor. You have a wine underneath it that's low in acidity and doesn't have a whole lot of flavor. After a couple of weeks of settling, they start to look at the batches by a lab analysis and also professional tasters determine what is going to be biologically aged and what will not be biologically aged. So this is of that 65% of Primera Yema, because yep. already they know the stuff that's in the second press is all going to oxidative aging. Okay. But of that 65%, now they've got to classify it. How they, do they do that? They taste it, and they do some lab work on it. 
Okay. As they do the initial classification, harvest quality, origin of the grape, press, all of that, they're going to put a palo or a mark on the barrel that it's going into. And then there are various different types of wine. So each barrel is marked with a symbol. Okay. After the initial classification, they fortify the wine. If the wine is going into the program where it is going to be biological, which means the wine is very fine, the juice tastes very pretty, it has really nice characteristics, it is fortified to 15% alcohol. Fortified with what? With distilled wine. And often it's the distillate that they get from the third press of the wine, which we mentioned before. Okay. Sherry is a different kind of wine because whereas port and mm-hmm. the Vendue Naturels and all that, mm-hmm. those are fortified before fermentation is complete, leaving sugar uh, in the wine. Okay. Yeah. Sherry ferments all the way dry right. and it has the floor on top of it mm-hmm. and then you fortify it. The sweet wines are done a little differently. We'll talk about those later, but most sherries are bone dry. Huh. That explains why f- I like it. They're fortified after they have been fermented. In this case, if you fortify it only to 15%, because if you fortify it to more than 15%, mm-hmm. you're going to kill the floor. Oh, how long do you need to keep the floor alive? The wines need a little bit of time after the first classification and before the second classification. There's another six to 12 months, and they go in American oak barrels or butts, as they call them. Okay. They call the the barrels butts or they, they call, call the Americans butts? I'm sure they call both butts. Okay. They make the wine. They fortify it. There's flora on top of it. They're going to put it into these American oak barrels, and they're going to wait six to 12 months, the sobretablis period. Doesn't and pouring it into the barrels disrupt the floor? It or can. You have to floor? be really careful about how you do it. That sobretablis period is when you're going to taste and make sure after the under-the-table period, the sobretablas, you are going to make sure that the floor is flourishing in those 6 to 12 months. The wine is marked either to continue under the veil. If the floor, though, doesn't look good and it doesn't flourish yes. uh-huh, uh-huh. and it dies, it becomes a different type of wine. And if the floor dies, even if some of it doesn't look great, they're going to fortify it more. They will add more grape spirit and take it from 15 to 17%. Then and what will, does it become? It becomes either a palo cortado, yeah. which is then aged oxidatively. Again, we'll get to that. Or it can become one of our favorite wines, an amontillado. Oh. If it isn't fine enough to become a palo cortado, it becomes an amontillado. Okay. Amontillado is basically this biological wine that didn't make it all the way. So they fortified it a little bit more and then they age it oxidatively. If it turns out that it's horrible and it just turns out to be completely donkey, it is then moved into the vinegar program. Okay. Okay. So this sobre tablas period is actually really important because you've made the wine, you've now fortified the wine and the floor is there, Mm -hmm. but then there's this critical period of six to 12 months where is the floor going to continue thick over this or is it going to start to fall apart? And if it starts to fall apart, you got to do something different with the wine. You can no longer keep it there. Is there a minimum thickness that's required? I'm sure there is. I don't know what the actual centimeter requirement would be, but I think it's just that it needs to be uniform and it needs Uh, to be covering. I think the issue is really, you you can't have any, it's got to be covered. It's got to prevent the oxygen from getting in. It has to be a full veil. 
then what happens is, and again, you have to be careful about this, you're going to then commit that you have these wines that are in one program or another, and you're going to put them into the nursery. <laughs> which is the like with the rest of the Cabbage Patch Kids? Yes, with the okay. rest of the Cabbage Patch Kids. Yep. You're going to put them in these botas, these butts, the oak casks, and you're going to do this thing called dynamic aging. And this is what's confusing and why we're going to need to end on Sounds like note. marketing speak. No. So this is incredibly complex, and I'm not sure how they even came up with this idea, but every style is going to age for different periods of time. You are going to take a barrel yeah. that is 600 liters, the butts or the botas that are 600 liters, mm -hmm. and you're only going to fill them up to 500 liters. The barrels are painted black, so if leakage happens, they can tell that the black paint is looking wet. Oh, interesting. Really okay. smart. Uh -huh. Oxygen is going to come in through the wood. Wood, right. There's an annual evaporation of 3 to 5%. That's mainly water. And that's going to concentrate the flavors and the color of sherry in certain parts. And hmm. there's going to be separate aging systems for everything. So wines from different ages are going to be blended. And this is where that consistent quality comes in. Remember, we talked about the right. need for consistent aged quality. So the casks are arranged on what they call scales. They're levels. So you have the bottom level and they're stacked up on top of each other. So if consistency is that important, does vintage mean anything? There are some vintage sherries. I'll talk about those in a second. Okay. But generally speaking, most sherry is non-vintage. Like Gr champagne. Great question. Yes, great question. The casks are arranged according to age, but in order to get this consistent style, each what's called a solera is made out of these levels of barrels. The oldest wine is on the, on the floor of the bodega. Okay. The youngest wine is at the top of the stack. Okay. And then there's other stuff ordered by age in between. Right. How do you get the oldest one out of the stack? Periodically what happens is that wine from the bottom level will be taken out. It's usually after two years. And then it will be bottled. It's called saka. The wine goes out to be bottled. Now the bottom barrel is somewhat empty. They've taken usually a third to, to two thirds out. Okay. Now you've got to fill it up. So you do what's called running the scales, correr escalas. You've got to top off the barrels. Is it like a waterfall program? It is basically a waterfall program. That's oh, what, it, why wow. it's called fractional blending. It's a little bit oh, confusing. But you take the next oldest wine from yep. the second level and you fill up whatever oh, you've taken and wow. replenish it. It's called rocio, a sprinkling. So you top up the barrel on the bottom. Then you do it with the next barrel, right? Everything's got to be filled up. But what you're doing is you're taking pieces and parts from each vintage and replenishing it. Sounds very labor intensive. It's incredibly technical. You need special equipment to move the wine without yeah. disturbing the floor. They've been doing this since the 1700s. Right. Right. That's incredible. Yeah. This is an incredibly difficult process because you have to have special equipment. You can't disturb the floor. You have to keep that veil over the right. over the wine, but at the same time, keep moving a fraction of the wine. So it is really, really hard to run the scales. It is incredibly important for biological aging. And the reason it's more important for the ones with the floor on them mm -hmm. is because the floor needs new stuff to snack on. So you're getting right. more oxygen when you put in the, the younger wine. Yep. You also have glycerin. The floor will snack on the mm -hmm. glycerin. You got to give it something to snack on. 
And for the second type of wine, it's going to help speed up oxidation, the oxidative wine. What we are talking about when we're talking about these types of wines, now that I've basically told you how to do this, is fractional blending. And it seems to make sense to you, right? Like, yes, that you're it does. just doing this. Yeah, that's cool. Well, what you can get, the final result is that you have a personality of the wine, a house style that's going to stay over, no matter what the vintage was like over mm-hmm. the course of time. A lot of times these wines are given an average age based on oldest to youngest. So you may see that. And then there are vintage wines. That's a static system. You're not blending the wines together. And those wines are identified. Yeah, they are. And they're identified in the Sobre Tablas, the under the table stage. Those don't go in a Solera system. They're just aged separately. The most traditional thing in the Jerez region is this fractional blending system. Mm -hmm. We need to just talk about the biological wine. Biological aging is when that floor does not die. So when the Velo de Flor doesn't die, which means you've only fortified the wine to 15%, Mm -hmm. the wine is protected from contact with oxygen. Mm -hmm. There's this biological layer of the yeast. So it's under the floor, mm-hmm. and that layer is going to protect from air. You would think they would call that the ceiling, though, instead of the floor. Ha, ha, ha. I already I know, told flower. you it was a flowering. I know, I know, yes. I know. Okay, so when you're done aging this wine, you decide to do the saka, which is sakar taking out. Mm-hmm. For bottling and sale out of the, the oldest Solera. Right. Then you're going to take the wine out of the cask. You're going to clarify and filter it. Sometimes they don't filter, actually, these days. That's kind of popular. And then you have the wine. Now, what we're just going to address is that wine that has been in contact with the floor, biological aging. So the biological wines are Fino and Manzanilla. And as I mentioned before, you have Palo Cortado and Amontillado as well. Those start out their lives as finos, and then they don't go the distance under the floor, and they are then fortified to 17%, and they are put in contact with air. If the wine is made in Jerez de la Frontera or El Puerto de Santa Maria, it is yellow and pale golden. Mm-hmm. It's like almonds and yeasty stuff. It's a little bit like it has some really, really nice notes, but it's very saline. It is not acidic. It's very aldehydic. That's the thing about sherry. So Fino named fine because it is supposed to be the absolute top wine that they make. This is from the best wines, the best grapes. They have been marked from the very beginning as the golden children, essentially. And these wines are marked for the best bottles that the bodega makes. The so Fino, fine. Fine as in superlative, not fine as in when I say, how do I look today? And you say fine. No, right. this, is, okay. this is very, very fine. Got it. And Manzanilla is also a dry white wine made from Palomino. Right. Subjected to the biological aging under the Velo mm-hmm. de Flor. But it is only from Sanlúcar de Barameda. It's pale And the difference is that although it is similar to Fino, Mm -hmm. it has more characteristics of things like chamomile and herbal tea. And it really is. That sounds delicious. It is incredibly saline. It has a long finish. It's almost like a salty chamomile tea in a way. Mm. Manzanilla is my preferred biological wine of the two, although Fino can be very good. The thing that I will say is that these wines are very different. They do not taste like anything you've ever had, and they are very crisp. They need a chill 
generally speaking. And they have distinctive flavors because of all of the things that I said, not the least of which is terroir and then all of the aging underneath the floor. It has these interesting flavors. The second half of this podcast is going to be talking about the sweet styles of sherry and the oxidatively aged wines. Oh, okay. Because those wines are quite different and there are many, 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 many of them. Mm-hmm. So I think that, like I said, even if it's a shorter show next time, it's better that we just go over what happens during the oxidative process, how that works, and then some other things about sherry, how to enjoy it, food pairings and things like that in that second part. Because I think this is already a lot of information about the history and about production. And so we're going to take a pause for a week. We're going to have the cliffhanger and we will talk about the second style of sherry next week. It almost sounds like a completely different kind of wine, really. From a taste perspective, it really is. Give me time to go buy some Marcona almonds. So that is... Sherry part one, biological aging and the history. And we will see you next time for the second part. And you will learn about why things are called like pale cream sherry and what that actually is and yada yada. So we'll talk about that next time with a cliffhanger. This has been another episode of Wine for Normal People. Thank you so much for listening and we will catch you next time. 